Welcome to the final episode in Season 5 of the Taproot Podcast, where we dig beneath the surface of a scientific publication to tell the stories behind the science. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. For many of us, what came out of 2020, and I guess you can add January of 2021, was a realization about how much in our world needs changing within academia, within our government, and within the patriarchal and racist culture we live in. Many of us are newly invigorated to fight for justice and for change, but it can be hard to know exactly what we are being called to do. Today's guest, a man husbands, has thought a lot about this, and he talks here about how he is working for individual and system changes within his lab and in his local government. We also discuss pivoting your lab focus to roll with what life gives you. We actually recorded this episode last week because our minimally competent audio engineer, which would be me, made a pair of mistakes on the original October recording that made the tracks unusable. Fortunately, a man was gracious enough to re-record with us, for which we are supremely grateful. And with that, on to our episode. All right. Today's guest is a man husbands. A man is originally from Canada and got his undergraduate degree from the University of Toronto. After doing his PhD at UC Riverside with Patty Springer, he moved to Cold Spring Harbor to train with Maya Timmermans. In 2018, he moved to the Department of Molecular Genetics at the Ohio State University, where he is an assistant professor, or as he recently put it on Twitter, a probationary professor. A man's research group studies developmental patterning in leaves. Welcome to the Taproot, a man. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. We're so happy to have you here. So today's paper is titled Identifying Cancer-Relevant Mutations in the DLC Start Domain Using Evolutionary and Structure Function Analyses. Um, the first author is Holub, and this paper recently came out in the International Journal of Molecular Biosciences. So, Aman, you want to give us just a little short, brief, quick overview of the paper? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot. Um, so the, the goal of this paper was to basically identify residues that might contribute to the function of a tumor suppressor, which is called DLC1 or deleted in liver cancer 1. And so these DLC proteins function in a number of different cancers, and they suppress proliferation, invasion, and metastasis of tumors. And so they have this, this multi-domain structure, and as part of that structure, they have a start domain. Uh, the steroidogenic acute regulatory transfer domain. So I, we just call it START domain. And STARTs have these, have these characteristic helix grip fold structures. And, and a common theme about them is that they bind hydrophobic ligands like sterols or fatty acids or carotenoids. So for the plant people, uh, for some context in plants, and AB, uh, the ABA receptor, for example, is a START domain. So our long-term goal is to, to figure out how the START domain might regulate these DLCs. You know, it's basically like a built-in pocket that might be really well-suited for, for drug targeting. That's our sort of long-term goal. But the, the specific goal of this paper was just to identify residues in that start domain that might in some way contribute to function. And so we did this basically using a combination of evolutionary and structure function analyses and this huge publicly available data set, which is called COSMIC, a catalog of somatic mutations in cancer. And so COSMIC is basically like thousands of sequenced individual tumors from all these different tissue types. And basically, we were looking to see whether we had any mutations that were piling up inside the start domain. And that might give you an indication of what might what might matter for, for function. And so we saw that there were mutations there, 
but there were no obvious kind of hotspots, right? Like no residue really jumped out at us as, as something that might be important. And so, so we figured maybe this is because mutations were accruing in these conserved residues that, um, that are really going to be spread out if you're looking at, at something at the primary amino acid level. So we, so we collected 120 sequences, 46 different vertebrate species spanning, you know, 450 million years of evolution. And we do this really stringent multiple sequence alignment. And what we get is about 20% of those residues are really, really highly conserved. And then we see, in fact, that those mutations are indeed preferentially occurring actually in those conserved residues. And so we, um, we, we then did some structural modeling um, to see what these residues might be doing and, you know, therefore what might be happening. And indeed, we see that they're forming lots and lots of interactions at that tertiary level and, and that mutations in cosmic that we see might break those bonds, right? And maybe that's why, maybe that's why you're basically seeing this over-representation in this database of, of, of cancer. And so these have been validated actually um, previously. A couple of these uh, mutations have been validated by other groups. So that also gives us, you know, comfort that we're actually identifying, you know, a nice high confidence set of residues to, to start working with. You know, what do they do? That structure and partners, ligand binding, subcellular localization, and so on. So, um, so we now have basically a nice, a nice start uh, on this project. Nice pun there. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, right. I feel like you might have used that before. So, so you got all these, you've got all these like candidate key residues, right? For vertebrate proteins. I didn't really introduce this, but your interest is in plant versions of these proteins. Yeah. So, is there a trend? Do are a lot of those conserved in the plant uh, lineage also? Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. I had looked at that, and it's basically a yes and a no. So the conservation kind of falls off. So even if you look at vertebrates, which is 450 million years, you're only, you only have about 20% of these residues that are highly conserved. And, and it falls apart even more the kind of the further away in evolution you go. But, but there are, I think really what it's about is forming that structure, that helix grip fold structure. It gives you this deep hydrophobic pocket that, let, that then lets you bind these ligands. So basically, as long as you end up forming that structure, there's a lot of, uh, of, of uh, tolerance to what these mutations are. Now, obviously, you could only do this because you have this huge database of information from the human cancer world. And I, I get the sense that that, is, that just dwarfs the kind of information that we, is available to plant scientists. Was that, was that a different a paradigm shift for you? Yeah, absolutely. To somehow benefit us as well, to, to come back to Liz's question, can we actually transfer some of that information, you know, maybe with clearly with a different question. I'm not trying to solve cancer in plants just yet. It's a good question. I, I th I, I, it requires a different way of thinking about things. You know, we're very much, let's cross it and we'll go to the third generation and see what happens. But, you know, the cancer people are not thinking like that at all. They're very much like at the level of the patient, you know, what can you do right now? So it is a very different way of, of thinking about it. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about the ways in which doing this project enriched or you see will enrich your research into the plant uh, start domains? Right, right, right. Indeed, exactly. I mean, some of this is sort of funding, right? The idea that you want, um, you need to access multiple revenue streams, which is what I could come to. Um, but from a scientific standpoint, man, that's actually a hard question. How has this specific project enriched our plant stuff? Well, it's money. Honestly, a lot of this is money. Well, I mean, Amon, this all sounds like a great, like this is, this paper is a great contribution to the literature and, and is going to lead into all kinds of interesting and new lines of research for you and maybe for other people in your field. But as I alluded to earlier, your, um, this is, 
working on cancer biology is seems like it might be something new for you. <laughs> also, maybe being yeah. doing bioinformatics seems yeah. like a little bit of a departure. So, um, can you? How did you go from what you what your interests were earlier to developing this project? And actually, how so? How did you recruit lab members to to do something like this? You know, I was at Cold Spring Harbor for postdoc. So it's not just plants, it's, you know, many, many different, I, I went to talks on autism and cancer and neurobiology. So I've, I've always had this interest in, in that, you know, the uh, science more broadly, right? Um, uh, to, to, from the perspective of model systems. Um, but what I've always worked on is, is these, are these HD zips, these class three homeodomain leucine zippers. So these have a homeodomain and then also a start domain. And then these really critical developmental regulators in plants that are involved in, you know, multiple different facets of plant development. And this, um, this idea proposed by Catherine Schrick in 2004 is, is that maybe these are sort of like animal nuclear receptors, right? Maybe their transcriptional activity is directly regulated by some lipophilic ligand. And I just, you know, I, yeah, even in, when I was in Patty's lab as PhD, I was like, that is so interesting. And so I've always been sort of interested in, in it from that angle. But, you know, yeah, maybe being at Cold Spring Harbor, I start to take a step back and think, how can this one domain, which is basically a little pocket, do all these really different things. So you could imagine that maybe it does the same thing in every uh, protein, right? You know, homey domain binds DNA. That's what it does. Right. But these start domains seem to have, you know, not just different biological functions, but different regulatory mechanisms. Sometimes it's, you know, transferring lipids between membranes. It's, it's, or it's modulating protein-protein interaction, or it's, you know, protein stability or, or stabilizing of proteins. So how can one domain do all these different things? I've just found that really sort of intellectually interesting. And then I come to OSU and, and I joined this grant writing group with mostly cancer biologists. So, which again is cool because you have to talk about your plant stuff, you know, in a way that gets these sort of broader ideas across to somebody who does not know what xylem or phloem is at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this was, this was definitely fun to do. And it was an intellectual challenge for me to do. And, and one, you know, one, the, the person leading the group, Rick Fischel here had suggested, why don't you become the start domain guy, so to speak. Right. I'm interested in how this domain could regulate the transcriptional output of something, but I'm also super interested in how it could regulate uh, other proteins like these DLCs, which are rho-GTPases. Ro I mean, that is probably a different regulatory mechanism, but still with that same underlying idea that you would bind to a ligand and that sort of does something that gives you this control over things, which as a developmental biologist, you know, that notion of integrating signals is, yeah, it's very interesting. So that's kind of what got me thinking about it. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you can't just like do cancer, you really need to come at this and, you know, with mentors and with a plan and, and all that. And one nice thing at OSU is, uh, is Pelotonia. It's this, um, it's like a bike ride thing. So you get people to sponsor you for the bike ride and they raise money for, for cancer research. And then that funds undergrads, grads, postdocs, and even at the PI level. And so me and my grad student put in for a fellowship for that and we got it. So that's a couple of years of funding. Um, and as a new PI, you need to really, really not just write grants, but also, you know, diversify those funding sources. If you can have multiple funding streams coming in, uh, that really makes your lab a little bit more, you know, resilient to these ups and downs and the occasional global pandemic. Occasional. <laughs> <laughs> Once a century is enough. I don't like the framing there at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's right. I think the first is that my department is not plant specific, right? So we use multiple model organisms. And so, so therefore, we tend to recruit students who are sort of okay with the idea of of branching out a bit. And I think more importantly than that, that I really have made a conscious effort and I've been lucky to recruit students that believe in, in my lab philosophy, right? That we're a supportive and collaborative lab. Like we make it or we don't make it. It's really as simple as that. 
And so, you know, my grad student Ashton Holub, who's first author on that paper, he, he um, you know, he, he, yeah, his broad interest as well, but was really enthusiastic about the challenge of writing for that fellowship and because he understands why it's important. It seems like either you're like a wizard and you already knew that you were going to need to to pivot to bioinformatics, or you were able to um, take advantage of opportunities that were in front of you. So tell us a little bit about how that all happened. I'm not really a bioinformatic person, right? This was just not what I was really trained to do. But but you know, I had a student who was willing to learn. I was willing to learn, and we had this this Pelotonia, which actually we didn't even know we were going to get this at the time, right? So we basically said. What can we do to make the best use of this time? So we start writing a review with some of my students, uh, working on a mathematical modeling paper with another student. And with Ashton, it's like, well, look, if we don't get Pelotonia first time, it's okay, right? We'll work on this paper. I have another colleague here, Ruben Petriaka, who really put me onto this cosmic database. He, he's actually also an, an author on here. And, and, and Ashton is a second first author paper with Ruben as the senior author. So we've actually really made hay with this. And, and Ruben was like, well, look, use this cosmic database, right? If you want to get into cancer, then I think you're going to need to establish a foothold. You have to show them that you know what you're doing. The data is out there. Here's how I analyze it. Uh, and then I brought the evolutionary kind of structure function perspective, which he hadn't thought of. And it was just this nice combination, you know, that really came together. But we had to do something. Otherwise, you're basically sitting at home for months and you're just burning money. Um, yeah, we didn't spend money on supplies, but I mean, you guys both know the major cost of a lab is, is salaries, right? So how do we keep students motivated and engaged and, you know, push forward their career, push forward my career? It's, it's man, it's, it's a tough time. And so this, this paper and this project, I think, was a nice, um, a nice way to bridge that. And I feel like it's actually going to take off. We have this funding to do this, and we can generate this preliminary data. Now I can start putting in for, for R01s. And it came basically by pivoting from, from a bad situation trying to make the most of it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think a big part of what's impressive to me about how you did that was, I mean, of course you had, so you had this opportunity out there that you grab. Part of it is like opening, like thinking like, okay, I need to think more broadly. But another part of it was that you were already casting about. It's like, what did they say? F chance favors the prepared mind. That's right. But yes, I completely agree. And that's, that's the right way to do it, right? You want to do exciting science and there are, there are yeah, multiple systems to do it in and multiple agencies that, that would be willing to sort of fund exciting science if you wanted to, to take a chance. You know, this having this, you, you have to be flexible. You have to go find funding. You have to have good questions. But I, I, one of the things that I always worry about is getting myself too far on that path and forgetting what I, the core things I care about and still wanting to, you know, this is what my lab does that matter most to me. And, you know, I definitely don't want to, you know, hear that you're like leaving plants because you, you know, there's this, all this great cancer stuff you can do, right? Never. Okay, good. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. And it's, it is, it is indeed a, a tension. I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think the question is, are you interested in what you're doing, right? That's really the key. Do you really like these scientific questions? And I do, I really mm -hmm. do. I, I find, yeah, this question of what is this tumor suppressor doing? I mean, it's, it's good that we can try to sort of leverage some NCI money. Don't get me wrong, but I would not study this if, there, if I was not interested in it. There are other proteins I could have studied that have the start domain, but there's something about this that I found really, what a challenge, man. It is funny, right? As plant biologists, we tell people what we do. They're like, why do you do that? It's annoying, but cancer people never have to deal with that, right? So it is, it is sort of funny to, to, to get a different uh, reaction when you talk about your science. But, but to me, it's, it's regulation. You know, I mean, this has, has embryo lethal phenotype. So from a developmental standpoint, 
I know that this gene also matters as well. Like it does, it does hit those higher level things for me that I find interesting. And, and yeah, in some ways, plant people, we always, we call ourselves plant people, you know, which, and I still totally do it. But, you know, we, we answer, I mean, Liz, you're talking about mechanosensitive proteins. That, that's yeah. not a thing, right? No, I mean, no, no. This is a system to study this really interesting question. I, I just, and I, I think that's a good way. It's hard to break out of because obviously I did my PhD in, in Riverside as botany and plant sciences department. You, you know what I mean? And so it was going to Cold Spring Harbor and having, and just seeing that people, you know, yeah, can use the same techniques and actually be asking really similar questions in what look like wildly different systems you know, that have different cultures built around it. But Ivan, it's funny you say when I leave plants, no way. I love like, the plant community for the most part, super cool and friendly. And the vibe has been nice since undergrad, you know, and, and I do not know that I would want to just go swim with the cancer sharks. Good Lord. So, <laughs> so there is, you know, I think I could, uh, I think there are ways to do this that allows me to, to scratch that scientific itch, but also, you know, and also be able to fund the lab and you know, like I always say that my responsibility is, is to the lab, to the people here, but also the people who come next, right? So that, that means indeed securing funding and securing and trying to be stable, even though, um, man, that is challenging. So as long as I don't ask questions that are too far, I think, outside of what I find personally interesting, then you'll be okay. Because, yeah, it's easy to get the fellowship, but then you need to do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, we were, like, we were high-fiving, you got the fellowship, and it's like, well, shit, man, I need to do cancer for two years. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've a couple times sort of gone down the road of, you know, starting to write a grant with somebody or being part of a consortium and then realized that, ah, you know, the, the, I, when, I, when I sit down and look at it, it's like, I'm not actually excited to do that work. And I think it's, I think I should probably, you know, back out. And, it, but it's, and it's, it's hard because you want to be open to new ideas and you need to be open to new ideas. You need to be able to explore that space. but. It's, yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right. But I would, I you would also have that in the plant world too, right? There's a lot of plant projects. Oh, sure. No interest in doing, right? So indeed, it's it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's tuning what you do to what you're, um, to what you enjoy doing. And I agree with you on learning new stuff. So I want to go back to this grant writing group because that seems that that like that was really helpful for you. And there are also, I think, people who have goal setting groups and. Um, and paper writing groups that have been really helpful for them. So, so tell us about this group and, and how it started and, and, and what, what it's about. Oh, yeah. I cannot stress that enough, how valuable this has been. So it's basically new PIs, junior PIs. And there, there's someone here whose name is Rick Fischel. He has a single, he's a single molecule person. This is how we first connected. I had done some single molecule work in postdoc. And he's obviously very successful. He's got multiple R01 grants in. And he said, all right, I'll teach you and, you know, a couple of your, a couple of your fellow colleagues, including uh, Ruben, who I'd mentioned, you know, well, I'll look at your grants, show me, send me your specific games. We'll meet Friday, 4 PM and we'll, we'll go through it and we'll see about the changes. And it was just night and day. You know, if you look at some of my earlier work, I, I was writing like Charles Darwin, these like paragraph long sentences, you know, and none of it was, was, was clear. And, you know, what are your objectives and, and all this? And it was just really nice to have multiple people, not just your peers, but somebody who is a, you know, a successful grant getter to, to do this. And, you know, NIH people also write their grants slightly differently than, than NSF. And so that was also, um, it was cool in a way, you know, and it also kind of keeps you on a, on a schedule. It is very easy to, to drift and start prioritizing other things because yeah, grant writing can be, can be a slog sometimes. Just knowing like in a week or two, it, I'm up and I need to have something there, super valuable. I th I, th I can't I can't emphasize enough, and this is true for P 
API grants, for student fellowships, for postdoc fellowships, how valuable it is to have someone who is not in your group read your grants because totally. those are the people who are going to be in the panels that read your, your, your proposals or your grants are people who are not in your field, basically. And we way too often tend to write for the people close in our field. And it's that getting somebody who's a little bit farther away to, to, to actually give you their perspective. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And, and also to, to write simply as well. So I'm, so, so you know, imagine it's 9 p.m., and someone has to read your grant, they've already had a long day. Do you really want to piss them off? Or do you want to just really clearly, cleanly say what you're trying to say, you know, and you just do it? Yeah, just get, r- get right to the point. Plants are Cecil. Done. <laughs> I start everything with that. I use the word Cecil as often as possible. Now, yeah. Cecil is a no and elucidate is a no. Those <laughs> How about interrogate? Do you use interrogate? Well, I will now. Yeah, and also, please be sure to start every other sentence with interestingly. <laughs> That's right. No, it's so funny you say that because Rick was like, you're trying to sell me a car here. <laughs> it was kind of true. You know, I read him over. I'm like, interestingly, intriguingly, remarkably. You're like, if it's remarkable, it's remarkable. And they'll know, you know, so you just, and if you have to say that, maybe you haven't framed your question in a large enough way, or maybe, yeah. you know, maybe you need to take a giant step back. From the discussion of like, how whether to use these sort of elaborate words it's interesting i was sort of trained not to do it at all but i think that there are cases where it, they actually do a really good job of telling the reader what you think about your data and that's not always bad i just they think they just have to be used judiciously can you talk a little bit more about how you deliberately create an atmosphere in your group and how you were able to use that to keep everybody um, above water during the, especially the early stages of the pandemic when everybody was really struggling to figure out what would happen next. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I feel like, um, you know, that GIF of that community GIF of Troy walking and holding the pizza and everything's on fire. That's kind of how I feel. So it's cool to see that. that (laughs) You think that I have it in hand. Um, No, you're right. We had to all pull together. And so you just have to, you have to recognize that it's an odd situation, recognize that your productivity is going to go down and that's just all there is to it. And if there's ways you can get around it, there's ways you can get around it. But I think you got to start by actually changing your expectations, right? Not saying that you will and then holding people to that same standard, right? If you're going to do it, then you got to do it. And I think it was just checking in as often as I could and, and, um, you know, again, if something doesn't get done, it's okay. We'll get back into lab. And we actually did. We got in at a pretty reasonable time. I think by June-ish or and maybe early July, I think we were starting to get back in there at lower strength. And even then, I'm like, it's fine. Let's just prioritize what we need to get done. If we can get some writing done, that would be, that would be great. You know, here, let's just set some, some benchmarks. Tell, tell us how you're doing that. I have always had the open door policy. So basically, the philosophy of my lab is that it's, an, it's a supportive and a collaborative environment, right? Full stop. So I think we're building something. The key, I think, is giving them my ex- intentions and, and what, I, what I want and why it matters, right? So I always explain why something matters. So you're asking for specifics, but I always have an, uh, now that I'm back in there, this, it's an open door policy. Um, I've, you know, I talk to my people every day, multiple times a day, you know, about the projects that are going. They come in there handing me gels for PCR all the time. And I love that. Like, oh yeah, let's try this. Let's troubleshoot that. So there's a real constant 
consistent uh, communication between us that is all that was there before the pandemic and is there now. During the pandemic was harder because, you know, in some ways, what are you going to talk about? So giving people a little more space was what I did. I would, you know, we'd check in once a week, for example, and, and uh, as a lab, and we'd have, you know, half an hour lab meeting. I didn't do journal club, for example, during that time. It's like, it's okay. You know, these papers will still be there. You can read them again later, you know? And, and so I, I was just, uh, yeah, I, yeah. When I say I changed expectations, it really was that. It's, it was checking in, how's everybody doing? That should be the first question that you ask. And then, you know, the goals would be, let's try to get these papers out by the end of the year. How are we doing on that? I guess I just think, yeah, I'm just interested in how, you know, it's easy to articulate your like lab mission or lab vision, but then how like boots on the ground, you actually convey that vision to the people in your group. I think it feels like a whole other, what do I, yeah. can of beans, bag of worms. <laughs> yeah. Like kind of in, intention. So always tell people why why what you're what you you know what the experiment is for why it matters right where does it fit in the larger goal if you're pushing them it's because i have a grant that i'd like to get out at this time and this is the piece of preliminary data that i think is really going to support this so so there's buy-in right we are doing this together like you know we make it or we don't make it right and and if we can do this if we can bring in money then people don't have to ta that allows you to now focus focus in on this if we do this we can now travel to go to a conference right so this has to be something where, where we are working together right? Rather than you were working for me. Um, and it just comes down to every single day, just, just talking to people, how's it going? What's, uh, I, you know, are you running into any specific problems that I could help open door policy, multiple meetings per day, basically. And if I need to work from home, I'll, I'll work from home, but I try to actually minimize that. I try to sort of be physically present because if you're there, yeah, it sort of follows from you a little bit. So, it's, it, so don't say something, you need to actually do it. Otherwise, yeah, they'll call you on bullshit. It's interesting because, you know, I really haven't gone in at all, basically, and, and have turned my office into a space for people to take a break with walls where they can take off their mask and, you know, have some, have some computer time so that, so that they can space out more. I, we tried a little bit meeting people outside when the weather was nice, but it's currently 10 degrees. Fahrenheit, and um, I'm not going to have an outdoor meeting right now. So it's, it's, it really is all over Zoom in my lab. Yeah, Zoom is not the best. I know. It's such yeah. a barrier. You know, if that was the only way of meeting people, which is how it was in the pandemic, it, you really feel separate from them. There's just no substitute for actually going to lab and seeing them there. You know, people are working, we're socially distanced and all that, and everyone has masks, but it is, it is a big difference. You know, you feel like you're actually part of that same group again, which was, yeah, which is the hardest part of all this. You know, you feel like you're almost working for, for what, like, where's the end? What's the point of this? You know, and unless you clearly articulate where you're going, it's very easy to just kind of lose motivation. You were just referring to the ways in which sort of being a new PI, and then you add onto that the pandemic, but then something we haven't really talked about is, um, what happened over the summer with mm. protests and racial reckoning regarding uh, police brutality against people of color. And I feel like that probably also added to your synergized with your other stresses. You want to tell us a little bit about how you, how, what you think about all of that and how you managed that as well? Oh yeah. Like I listened to your, the recent podcast with Thelma Matzima and she just did a fantastic job articulating that. I think it's exactly right everything just sort of compounds on you in this 
in some ways you're you're glad that there's this energy out there and that something might might actually you know change and then in other ways wow, it's really demoralizing you know it's just it's a symptom of the, the society that's really kind of sick right now not just pandemic wise i mean there's really something fundamentally wrong you know and and i do really think about that right and and like how can i make a contribution what can i do and increasingly i think you know these are systemic problems and systemic problems require systemic solutions right in some yes. ways it's it is unfair. It's almost unethical to ask individuals to fix these problems, right? I think that is actually a conscious strategy of many of these institutions. And I say, hundred percent. Yeah, police, universities, electoral politics, people, whatever. The goal is to atomize you and to basically say you are you are individually responsible for these things. So, in a way, I think the solutions need to come from things like labor movements and from organizing, from that way of thinking about us as a group with a specific demand that we would like to do and like to solve, right? So, so, so those systemic problems, I think are going to require, yeah, indeed, banding together and coming down on, on, yeah, to systemic solutions rather than, rather than at that individual level. So what does that look like? What does that look like to you at Ohio State, which, you know, you are a large state university in a, in a very, you know, reasonably red state like Liz and I live in, where there are these countervailing pressures uh you know at the community level at the state level and and people like football a lot i heard <laughs> i heard, I heard about that in a stadium in a pandemic i mean what are you guys doing but but yeah but i mean to come to your question i mean i, I yeah it's a good point and you know i i cannot solve issues with ohio state you know and it's not that ohio state is uniquely bad i think it has the classic problems of of a large institution. I mean, this is just what's going to happen the way these incentives are aligned. So, so, the, so I think about this two different ways. So the first is how can I address that on the individual level? What can I personally do? So a program that I'm putting together is um, uh, targeting Newark. So Newark is a regional campus of Ohio State. Uh, and I've, I'm forming Columbus Campus Research Opportunities, so CCRO. And the goal here is to pay three students per year in the summer to come to do research in the lab, sort of like an REU. And they will get housing, they'll get paid. So this improves their material conditions. You don't have to make the choice between doing research and, and you know, uh, yeah, putting food on your table. And then they'll join up as, as part of this consortium, which is this group of other summer programs. And we're all banding together, basically. So there'll be over 100 students that would then, you know, eat together, live in the same place and you know, put on a, a joint research symposium at the end and poster sessions and all this. So it basically gives these, these kids... And I'm targeting primarily uh, black, black students this opportunity to come to main campus and do that R01 level research and, and you know, tap into this large community of like-minded undergraduates, right? So that is one way that I can fix or help, you know, yeah, help address needs of, of let's say, three to nine individuals, okay? So that's, that's individual level. The second is that systemic question. And it's a really much harder one. And I think if you see my Twitter, you, you know, you'll, you'll see, I guess, the, the, what I've chosen is defunding, defunding the police. That to me feels like a very concrete, a concrete goal that I would like to work towards, right? This is a, you know, I was shocked that more than one third of the budget of these major cities goes to police. You know, add that to fire, it's over 50%. And, and that money, and they're being asked to do a lot that they're not supposed to do. So if a lot of that money goes towards funding people, you know, like mental health experts, so you don't shoot somebody who's having a mental health episode. Guy with gun is not the solution for many, many things, right? And this notion of crime will go up and the police solve all these things. They actually don't. They do not solve a lot of these things. So we're spending so much money and I think we're not getting very much back and we're damaging trust in the community. So for me, defunding the police is a concrete goal that we could work to. And it's ironic, actually, that given that I'm pro-union, 
<laughs> it's a bitter <laughs> that they have such a strong union, right? It's almost evidence in a way that a good union can actually really protect its members. Um, I just wish they would use it for good. So, so, so what I've done then is I've, I've put in my application for, for Columbus Civilian Review Board. So uh, my colleague, mm-hmm. Zaki Tabri, uh, put me onto that. He's a professor in EEOB department. So I'm hoping that they choose me for that. Over 200 people actually put in their application. So there seems to be a real, real hunger to actually have more police oversight. And we'll see if that actually translates into something. But on my application, I was very clear. I'm like, I also said, I think that, you know, until we really address the enormous power that police unions have, I don't see us resolving that, right? This, if this is a systemic problem for a reason. So it's yeah. just wealth, wealth getting extracted and then concentrated into regions over and over and over again. And, and then a lot of people are in a bad way. And uh, yeah, so I cannot fix that, obviously, but I'm hoping that this is one specific area that I think is particularly egregious and that maybe there's a way I can make a systemic contribution. And then we couple that to the science, to the research side of things. That's where I can maybe make a, an impact as, as an individual. I love your perspective on, um, you know, this idea that we need to be thinking systemically rather than individually. So how, I want to bring, loop that back to everything you were just discussing about how you lead your lab. So um, when, you're, when you lead a, a, a lab, that's a place where an individual actually has a great amount of power. And so I wondered if there were ways you were talking to your lab members about racism and about anti-racism or if you have sidestepped that like how have you how have you handled that i always tell people like a a culture is going to develop in your lab one way or the other the question is do you want to have an active role in shaping that that culture like it's it's going to happen and so for me it comes down to that supportive collaborative idea that you help everybody that we all help each other and i think if you if people really buy into that it is very these sorts of problems don't emerges often, I would say. Do I talk specifically about these issues? I never censor myself, I would say it that way. I don't, uh, I haven't done things like we're having a lab meeting to talk about, to talk about these issues directly and everybody needs to prepare this, this and this and come to me with that. Um, I think it's more sort of organic, um, organic discussions about it um, as it emerges, right? I never, I never feel the need to censor myself or, or, or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Maybe I should actually start to think about are there more direct interventions that I could that I could do? Yeah, we had one lab meeting where to discuss basically anti-racism work that we could do as scientists. It was only one, though. I know other um, friends have sort of regular tea hours where they issues of racism in science are discussed like on the regular. Yeah. So there's obviously a range of ways to approach it. Ivan, have you done anything deliberate? The day in June, the the scholar strike. Right, right. I encouraged everyone to take a, you know, said I was taking a day of reflection and encouraged everyone and had several follow-up meetings with people where we talked about what we had read, but not as a, not as a whole group. Yeah. yeah going back to what uh, a man said about Zoom being really hard, this is one of those things where I, I don't feel like we have had really deep discussions about anything as a group over Zoom. The, some of the science discussions have not, you know, it, it's really harder. I do feel like we can have smaller one, two, three person conversations over Zoom and still really get into something. But it's not organic. You're totally right. It's a terrible format. It's a terrible format to build those, those quick back and forths. It becomes about structuring some points that you need to get across if you can. And these things will cross my desk and, I, and I'll always, you know, always bring it up. And it just kind of comes up because somebody's there. I'm like, can you believe this shit? 
and then you know a discussion sort of starts from there and yeah it's, it's very present in my lab i think because i am very hyper aware of it right and, and i'm, mm-hmm, I'm not going to mm-hmm. censor myself other people will, will be aware of it too um but yeah no I, I i feel you on zoom i don't know that that's the best way to do it it might also breed resentment that you're being forced to sort of talk about this rather than um seeing how it affects somebody else and then changing your behavior accordingly you know yeah 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 we've actually we do a lot of talk on slack actually we do a lot more messaging now than we ever did and i feel like that's a way we're communicating a lot us too totally i love slack actually yeah i mean i think this sort of I mean, I think the one theme that's running through the whole this whole conversation is um, um, almost like this individual determination and um, like really evaluating what your, this is a very Baranda thing, right? Like determining what your mission is and then what parts of everything that's being asked of you, um, y- you can, but also you want and feel is part of your personal mission to do, right? Like, I feel like that's sort of the theme that's going through this whole conversation, whether it's about um, answering scientific questions or leading your group or, you know, really trying to change academic science or policing in your community for the better. And what I love is, I mean, one of the things that I find so admirable about you a man is that you are already so far on that pathway for such a young person. I feel like when I was your age, I was just really chasing what other people, what what I saw other people um, admired, rather than deciding for myself what I admired and wanted to be. And I that that's the thing I that I think is so cool about you is I can see you deciding for yourself how you want things to be and how to make them happen and. So I hope I hope that people who listen to this will um, get the same and and be sort of motivated to sit down and think the same for themselves. I appreciate that. Thank thank you so much. That's really nice to see. All right. Well, I think that sounds like a great place to leave it. A man, uh, thank you so much. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, yes. Twitter, probably at a man husbands or husbands dot six. That's my OSU. Um, you just Google me. There's like one a man husbands on earth. <laughs> so should be easy to find. And hope you like animated GIFs because you will find some there. Uh, me, me versus Justin Wally is going to be always some of the best GIF games. <laughs> but thank you so much for the uh, for the uh, you know invitation to, to speak. It's been really nice. I really love the series and been super fun this year. It's been a really, right. good, really good one. Yeah. It's, well, it's been our pleasure. And Liz, how can people uh, reach you? Twitter is also my game. Uh, you can find me there at, at eHaswell. And you can reach me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I, and you can reach the podcast at Taproot Podcast. And man, thank you again, and uh, we wish you the best of luck as you continue your awesome progress. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to both. is produced by the hosts in collaboration with the Plant A team of Katie Rogers and Mary Williams at the American Society of Plant Biologists. Joe Stormer provides our transcripts. We are going to take a break now and aim to get back to a new season this summer. If this is the first season you're listening, 
we urge you to check out our back catalog on your podcast player of choice. Thank you for listening to this season. Stay safe, and we'll get back to more stories behind the science soon. Thank you.